Hello, my dear friends. Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's wonderful to have you with us today. And please stay with us for this hour as we are uh, opening the Bible once more and uh, continue in the book of Psalms. So far, we learn lots of uh, wonderful lessons from uh, this book of Psalms. And um, today is not an exception. We are going to talk about uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can be part of this program, my dear friend, by sending us a text message to 0482093883. Don't hesitate to connect with us. Maybe you have a question, a thought to share, and we'll be very happy to hear from you. Have this number safe because we'll come a bit later uh, with the offer which we have for today. But I'd like to say hello to our panel today. And it's good to have uh, joining us today, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello, Joe. It's good to have you with us too. Oh, hello, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here again. Will, thank you for joining us. Happy to be back on the panel, Nick. It's going to be a good study. Naomi, thank you for being part of this discussion. Oh, thank you, Nick. Thanks for inviting me again, and, 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 and hello to all the listeners. And yes, it's a beautiful study today in Psalms. Thank you. Lija, thank you for being part of the panel today. Yes, always being delighted. Thank you. Len, it's good to have you with us. And I would like to say um, from the beginning, thank you for uh, taking some extra time to prepare this Bible study. You are going to facilitate the discussion. Welcome to the program. You're welcome. Hello, listeners. We're glad you've joined us. Well, Len, uh, as I said, uh, we have um, a very beautiful um, study today because we talk about um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The books of the book of Psalms reveal to us so many wonderful things about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked in the previous programs that the book of Psalms many times foretold about the wonderful work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be able to take us through? Oh, I'm pretty sure I could. Listeners, once before on this program, I mentioned that in her 2008 Christmas address, Queen Elizabeth II made a startling statement. She said, the world would do well to follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. Well, this politically incorrect statement caused a great stir on Fleet Street and British newspapers rampaged against their monarch that she had the audacity to say publicly what was on her heart. Notwithstanding the temporary indignant uproar, Queen Elizabeth bravely spoke the truth. She was not afraid to speak about Jesus, despite the unexpected backlash. Jesus believed the Psalms. Many of them are or were prophetic, announcing his coming and events that would occur while he was on this planet. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. And in the Psalms, through laments, thanksgiving, praises and cries for justice or deliverance, there are echoes of Christ's prayer for the salvation of the world. You might be surprised how Christ is revealed in the Psalms. 
But before opening our Bibles today, let's pray together. Thank you, Will. Dear Lord, thank you for including us in your eternal plan for the salvation of mankind. With the psalmists today, we wish to acknowledge you as merciful and righteous. We accept the privilege of heaven's invitation to us to become subjects of your eternal kingdom. This prayer of thanks, Lord, we offer to you in the deserving name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, if I asked you which was the most well-known psalm, you probably would say uh, Psalm 23, and you'd be right. But, um, Naomi, how is Christ revealed in Psalm 23, and what sort of imagery does this psalm convey? Oh, thank you, um, Lynn. It's just a beautiful psalm, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters and he restored my soul. And they're just the beginnings of the psalm and it's just beautiful. So we know that um, with this passage that there's nothing that we will want for when we walk with, with God. That is just such a promise there. And because we know that in, in, in Luke 12, 28 to 32, and it's a verse that some of the listeners may recognise, it says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet um, they don't worry for anything, do they? And, and But yet they have everything. And it says that uh, how much more will, will, will God look after us? And then it says only a little faith. And if you drop down to, to chapter to verse 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give us everything. So in, in the Psalm 23, when it talks about the Lord is our shepherd, it asks us to come to him and to lie down in green pastures because that is where we find rest with him. And if we look at there's wonderful analogies using the shepherd and the sheep, which is a wonderful um, imagery that he's given us because we know that with sheep that they they know their shepherd's voice and the, and the shepherd knows each of them because in traditional times the shepherd lived with the sheep, so he knew everything and he cared for them. And um, I found it interesting when I was, was, was reading about this passage that sheep don't actually lie down and sleep all the time. They, they stand a lot and they actually, they actually only have little naps of, of, of what we call REM sleep or deep sleep. And, um, but if there is no tension um, and that they are at peace with each other, they will lie down. So I think that's what this passage is saying to us, that he makes us to lie down green pastures. In other words, he's, he's imploring us to rest in him. And then it says he leaves them beside still waters. And I found that sheep actually do not drink from fast-flowing water. So, for example, mm. because he's leading them beside still waters, he knows they will drink. And we know that if we don't drink, we will thirst. And um, that that Jesus talks in the, in the New Testament about the living waters, that he will offer us water and we will never grow thirsty. Yes, this analogy, of course, applies very much to Jesus, who called himself the Good Shepherd. Mm. And he also said, my peace I give unto you. So, Joe, are there any practical ways that we can take advantage of having Jesus as our good shepherd? 
Well, Lynn, I imagine you mean practical ways. You mean that how do we demonstrate that the Lord is truly our shepherd? Is that right? Well, I'll refer to, I'll start with John 10 very briefly, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, what does hearing and following mean? Well, I think it has something to do with listening and doing, which brings me to my next text in John 15, where Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. There is a very strong connect between remaining or remain in my love and keep my commandments. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a loving relationship that's not evidenced by obedience to God, nor can you be truly obedient to God without knowing or loving him. The absence of one negates the other. A good shepherd is one that looks after and protects his sheep, as Naomi has so beautifully put, because Jesus is the good shepherd. He is safe to follow and obey. He has only good intentions and best interests. Now, David would know from his own experience he was a shepherd for many years, looking after his father's flocks. He understood, as many of us who read this psalm, do not, the very special relationship between the sheep and their shepherd, a completely trusting, dependent relationship. He felt that God was his shepherd and he could bask in this knowledge and praise him for his goodness. I imagine as he penned that psalm, he would have reflected on how God had led him through everything that he'd experienced. Yes. All right. Well, now I want to mention something I've mentioned before too. One time a colleague of mine said to me, oh, I believe in Jesus and I believe what he said. And then he followed that up by saying, but I don't believe in all that Old Testament stuff. So, Brenton, we're talking today about how the Psalms actually refer to Christ, like in Psalm 22. So, There are some selected verses there, which I hope you're able to read. Could you equate these prophetic statements with the passion of Christ? What happened to him before he was crucified? I certainly can, Len. I'm going to start at verse 1. Now, this is the Psalm of David. It's called the Psalm of the Cross. That's what it is known as. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, then dropping down further, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then down further in verses 17 and 18, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What needs be said about this, Len, is a number of things. First and foremost, as you read that description, it's it's a psalm of messianic suffering. 
It is quoted in Matthew chapter 27, uh, particularly the first verse, which is verse 46 of Matthew 27, where it says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's it's a cry, Lean, of utter abandonment, because when I was studying this earlier in the week, I came upon John 15, where Jesus said, this night, all of you are going to forsake me, but I'm not alone because my father is with me. Oh. But here he is on the cross. One Christian author has put it this way, the abandonment or the sense of abandonment that Christ suffered on the cross, I think she describes it in these terms. She calls it the sundering of the divine powers, never to be repeated again in the history of, of the universe. It's it's where God appears to be turning his face away from his beloved son because he is carrying the sin of the world. All of the other descriptions that I've read out apply to what happened on the cross. The priests and the rulers passing by and um, slinging off at him and saying, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And if he is the son of God, why doesn't he come down from the cross? It talks about them dividing his garments Matthew is the only one of the synoptic gospel writers who goes to a great deal of trouble to prove that Christ was the Messiah because he's writing primarily for a Jewish audience. And this is really, really interesting as you study this. Um, as I went through it, Len, every single verse has, has got meaning to it, but I'll just confine my remarks to what you've given me. All of those things even though they partially were fulfilled in David's experience, were fulfilled in, in the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that Christ used the example of Psalms? He quoted Psalms, I believe, to show his affinity with the human race. Psalm 22 was written by a human being, David, and Christ is equating himself, the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, with the person who wrote this. And I believe this shows us how close the relationship is between Christ and those who wrote these things. So what you've just told us, Brenton, will um, certainly disturb that colleague of mine. It would. It would. Who says he believes in Jesus Christ and what he said, but not the Old Testament stuff. And yet this Old Testament stuff is uh, prophecies about what would happen. Yes. Like there are 350 That's different right. prophetic statements in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. Now, we come across... Oh, sorry. Yes, Naomi? I was just going to say it's so interesting you both say that because I'm out in the community doing Bible studies, and that's a very common thing that people are saying, and that's not um, belligerence or um, fighting against... Um, the Bible, they actually have been taught that, that the, the Old Testament is not necessary, but with our studies, they're seeing that, wow, Jesus and God are revealed equally in both the, the Old and the New Testament, and it's it's actually really wonderful seeing them them actually discover that for the first time. Yes, and I guess there are plenty of others who feel the same. Oh, Old Testament, it's not relevant, but of course it is. Well, there's a particular mention in Psalm 118, verse 22, that pops up in Matthew 21 about a stone. So, Will, who's this stone and 
just explain a little bit more about what it means where the stone falls on someone or where someone falls on the stone. This is a very interesting statement. Sure, Len. You've just commented that um, there were so many prophecies that pointed to, to Jesus. Some of those prophecies in the Psalms speak about his suffering and his rejection. And it's uh, this rejection thing that I'd like to just comment on. In Psalm 118, verse 22, the Bible says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus, quoting this in Matthew, says, Jesus said to Matthew 21, verses 42 and 44, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 44 reads, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, there are a number of possible interpretations or comments on this, Len, but for the sake of our study today, I'd like to equate these texts to the imagery of one casting oneself on Jesus. Jesus, who is the cornerstone or the rock of our salvation. Falling on the stone is in fact a remedial act of submission, therapeutic in a way, whereas the significant cornerstone or rock, if rejected, has dire consequences for our salvation. The ultimate effect is that the despising person is crushed if it falls in judgment upon him. Hence the statement, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, this broken to pieces thing, maybe the the panel would like to comment, but, um, you know, when we give ourselves to Jesus, we give all, don't we? And he remakes us. And I think the broken to pieces thing probably refers to our giving out all. Yes, thank you very much, Will. And I believe what you said is very important. It shows how important Jesus is in our lives and what our future may be. Brenton? Uh, Len, it does a couple of things. Uh, Will has read some very, very interesting portions of Scripture. In, uh, let's see, verse 40, a little bit further down in verse 43, it says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Christ is predicting here the end of the Jewish nation as his special people. And these guys get it, because if you go down two more verses below that, it says they perceived that he was talking about them, and therefore they wanted to do something about it. They are in that situation that Willis just described, where if they fall on the rock and are broken, they are saved. But if the rock falls on them, they are crushed. And Christ is basically saying to him, guys, the time has come. 
you need to make a decision. This parable I've just told you explains to you what the future is going to be of your nation and of you as a people. You have a choice to make. Yes, and he did actually say some things about the future of the Jewish nation. He did. Mm. All right. Well, now, some versions of the Bible use the word capstone and others use the word cornerstone. So, Lydia, could you say why capstone or cornerstone is so important? Well, then, in olden times, when Israel built buildings or the temple, the stones were very important to be chosen. So there is the cornerstone or the head of the corner, which is the most important stone being set as the first stone in the construction. And all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, uh, determining the position of the entire structure. And there is the capstone, which protects the masonry or the building, causing the water of the rain to flow in a certain way as to mitigate erosion. And there is the keystone. The keystone is the wedge-shaped stone at the apex or the top of a masonry arch, or typically round-shaped one at the apex of a vault. In both cases, it is the final piece placed during construction and locks all the other stones into position, allowing the arch or vault to bear weight. Without it, the arch will collapse. The Hebrew word, this capstone comes from the Hebrew word pisgah, and synonyms are the capping, the high point or crowning. All right, so that's very well explained, Ledger. The cornerstone, of course, is the reference point. That's where you start. Without it, the building could be a shambles. And if the term keystone or capstone is used, that actually is the bit that goes in the top of an archway. Yes. Now, as far as this is concerned, we're not really interested in buildings. Nick, what important spiritual message can be gleaned from the analogy that Lidge has just spoken about? Alan, that's a very good question. And uh, even though uh, you said that we are not talking about buildings, we're talking about spiritual buildings. And we are part of one of those buildings, if you like. And uh, Jesus, uh, our Savior, is the one who keeps everything together. But it's interesting that uh, was made reference of capstone and cornerstone. Now, I have to say that both of these objects, if you like, are the most difficult ones to put in place when you start or finish a building. Usually the cornerstone is the biggest piece of stone, as Ligia mentioned, to put it uh, in the corner as foundation, as uh, a point of starting the whole building. And the capstone, usually, it's put on the top of the building to keep together the building. And it's the most difficult one to also put it up there, uh, particularly when you talk about uh, temples, churches, 
with a very high roofs and, and peak, you know, it's very difficult to put it on. Which means that we need to have Jesus as a foundation and as a, a point of keeping everything together, this spiritual building, which we are part of. If I would like to just um, read a passage in First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 4, talking about this, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. In Ephesians, just uh, expands a little bit more on this. And if I go on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19, maybe to 21, it says this. So now you, gentles, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. And the cornerstone, it's Christ, Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. That's the whole meaning of uh, being in Jesus Christ. Now, you talk about um, Queen Elizabeth at the beginning, Len, and it's wonderful to hear some of good words coming from the uh, people with power in this world. But I would like to draw the attention of each one of us. That is very important not to say the good words. You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's one thing to say things about Jesus, and it's another thing to practice what Jesus teaches us. Because uh, powerful people, political people, will use even the Bible and the influence, if you like, of our Lord Jesus Christ to consolidate their agenda. I will invite you, my dear friend, today to give your life to Jesus, to allow him to be the center of your life. And if you have some difficulties in life or some issues, why not to fall, as Will said a bit earlier, on that rock, which will not destroy you, but it will help to shape your character and to be a better person in the house of the Lord. Yes, I think you've drawn a spiritual thing out of that very well, Nick. I'd just like to summarize in my words. Jesus Christ is the foundation of all Christianity and as far as I'm concerned, the foundation of my life. Uh, that's the uh, cornerstone, capstone. He holds together. He holds the world together. Without Jesus Christ, this world has no hope whatsoever. Now, referring back to my colleague who said he didn't believe in any of that Old Testament stuff, Let's have a look about creation of the world. Brenton, according to Psalms 89, various verses, who created the world? And there are some New Testament verses to back it up. 
Let me read uh, Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. And down in verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. And he goes on uh, in this psalm. It's actually called a post-exilic psalm. And it's quite quite an interesting one to study. However, your friend would take uh, courage if he also had a look at the New Testament because the New Testament in John chapter 1, we are told in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were created by him and without him nothing was made that has been made. In Colossians 1.16 it says, For by him all things were created, both in heaven and in earth. And in Hebrews it talks about through whom, that's Jesus, also the worlds were made. I find I find these verses very, very meaningful because how can you not believe in a creator God and yet claim to be, uh, believe in a creator saviour? A creator saviour is in the New Testament or a saviour is in the New Testament. The creator is revealed in both the Old and the New Testament. I find it difficult philosophically to say to myself, I believe in Jesus. He died on the cross for my salvation. I don't necessarily believe he created me because that's all that Old Testament stuff and that's not really very relevant anymore. You can't have one without the other. The creator, only the creator could be the redeemer. And I think that covers uh, those verses pretty well then. Yes, thank you, Brenton. I totally agree. Now, Will, in Psalm 89, verse 27, which is about Christ, describes him as firstborn. And the same terminology is used in Colossians 1.17. So does this mean that Christ is a created being? In other words, not divine? I remember in my uh, my MA studies, um, studying with Dr. Raoul Dedrin, that uh, renowned French theologian, and we posed this question to him. And he looked at us with a strange look and and said, look, uh, he said, I've been studying this for 40 years and um, I can tell you I'm still challenged by the profundity of these statements. So, Len, if you want the short version, I can give it to you now. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that the firstborn son in Israel had special status special privileges and a larger, larger inheritance. To call Jesus the firstborn is placing special focus on him. From the original Greek of the Bible, it also speaks of Jesus as the monogenes, that's translated for firstborn, meaning unique, preeminent, one of a kind, not referring to being born first, rather is ranking as unique, and solely uh, legitimate. So this text in Psalm 89, verse 27, says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn. In rank, you can see, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Colossians 1, verse 17, Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the question is, how can he be creator and yet be born? Yeah. Well, 
If Jesus, then, was before all things, and by him all things were brought into existence, then how can the originator of all things, animate and inanimate, be described as being born? He was there in the very beginning. Look, it's really profound, and we can mess our minds up with this, but let's just accept that what the Bible says is true. He is first and above all, all-powerful, all-knowing, and in him everything that has come to existence is coming to existence from his hand. Yes, I think it will. I uh, like to use the word preeminent because first yes. one, of course, has more than one meaning. Yes, Joe. I think if we look at the use of the word firstborn in Scripture, I'll give a couple of um, examples. For instance, in Isaiah, uh, it talks, it says, and the firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety. That has sort of some references there to Psalm 23. But in the NIV, it's translated the poorest of the poor. So it's clearly not the firstborn, but the poorest of the poor will find pasture and the needy will lie down in safety. Also, Jesus was referred to as the firstborn of the the dead, but we know that he was not the first one to be raised. But what it means is that he is the most significant, the most preeminent of all those who have ever been resurrected. And so the use of the word firstborn doesn't actually mean to have in terms of a physical birth, but in its ranking, I think, as Will has already mentioned. So um, it's important to remember that firstborn is used in a variety of ways, but it doesn't actually mean had anything to do with, you know, being, giving, being given birth to. Well said. All right, well, now, these days there's a lot of sensational hype in some religious circles about Israel. And one popular speaker claims that Israel is currently the world's most important nation. Didn't say most powerful, but most important. And this idea is based on the covenants God made with Abraham, Jacob and David. How is the world to be blessed? Is it through national Israel or through Christ who was born in Israel? Joe? Clearly, it is Jesus through whom the world is blessed. There's no doubt about that. It's not the nation of Israel. Israel was particularly honoured to have had the privilege of being the nation through whom the Messiah came. But this honour in no way eclipses the Messiah himself. Even though in Genesis 12, God promises Abram that he would be a blessing and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you, it is important to remember that Abraham and his descendants were to be a blessing. They were not the blessing. Jesus is the blessing. He is the desire of all nations. And in Acts 4, it says, uh, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Matthew 1, 21, and she will bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There are many such texts. But I'd like to finish on a couple, but this one's a pretty good one, I think. As for Israel, Paul writes in Romans, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. 
but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, this is Romans 9, 6 to 8. And I love the text that you uh, mentioned, Brenton. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Yes. And given to a Mm. people who produce its fruit. So the true Israel, the true Israel is not one of nationality, but one of faith and rebirth, I would say. I believe you're dead right. Now, on this subject, with how is the world to be blessed, is it through national Israel or is it through Christ? You'll notice in Psalm 132 verse 12, there's a statement there with a very small word in it that makes a big difference. Naomi, could you explain for us, please? Yes, so it is a very small word, but it means so much, and you'll find it throughout the Bible when you read during the week any passage that has this word, really pay attention. So this particular one, Psalm 132.12 says, If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony, that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. So God is going to give us what he's promised to have eternal life and for our children and our children's children, but there is a caveat there if we will keep um, the covenant and the testimony. Um, And if we also then look over at uh, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 30, chapter 30, verses 15 to 17, it says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil, in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his His judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply which is it's being blessed, isn't it? And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whether thou goest to possess it. But it says, but if thy heart turn away so that they are not here, thou shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. So we must draw close to God and we must keep his commandments because they are there for our safety. They are there. It's like children. You you give them a safety net that they, they have structure, but they have freedom within that. So the if is very important, Len, to know that God has all this goodness for us, but there is something that we need to do too. We don't we don't just accept that. We need to also dwell in that, which is to be close to God and, and keep the commandments and the things he's given us that will help us. Yes, it's a conditional statement. Mm. If such and such, this will be the consequences. This is a good way to raise children. If you keep your room tidy, you'll be rewarded. Mm. If you don't, you won't get the rewards. I'd say, well, if you don't do this, there'll be painful consequences, but we'll leave that for now. Mm. And if we take it back to the shepherd, Len, that if the flock stayed with the shepherd, they were safe. If they wandered away, they were not safe. Yes. And, of course, why we're talking about this is because there are some people who have this belief that all Israel will be saved regardless, simply because there's Jewish blood running through their veins. But as I read the Bible, this is not the case. 
and I can see lots of heads going left and right agreeing with this particular statement. So in what Jesus said about Israel as a chosen nation, he said something pretty important, which I think a lot of people overlook. So, Lydia, over to you. Okay, Len, um, God chose Israel as his nation to be a witness to other nations around them, to know the true God to be worshipped instead of the false God, false idols of wood, stone, or uh, painting paper. But they rebelled. They were unfaithful. They were disobedient. And the Lord came to them many times, many times, to talk to them, to negotiate with them. And they didn't listen. And as we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hand gathers her cheeks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. So they rebelled against the Lord and the Lord rejected them. And uh, in Matthew 23, verse 37, it says, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. So the Lord opened his his arms wide to all the other nations to receive them, to receive all those who love the Lord and do his will. Well said. And I think, listeners, if you've been influenced by this Israel of prophecy yet to become the most important nation, you need to take notice of some of these things we're talking about. Well, Nick, since national Israel was rejected, is it likely that God will reinstate Israel as a chosen nation? Well, then many people believe that will be the case. And even in Israel right now, they are uh, having great plans uh, to become again as Israel of the olden days. And with a lot of proud people, even in, uh, in Christianity, they will point towards Israel that they, uh, they are the apple, apple of God's eye. What this is going to do, uh, Len, it's the enemy always have a way of deceiving people with the very good things and and with the quotes from the Bible. Israel uh, is working right now. You may heard about even the Temple Institute. They want to reestablish the temple in Israel. They're working through all the furniture and everything, almost everything ready, everything prepared. They are looking for um, a special thing which they call it the, the red... Red heifers. Red heifers. Now, as was pointed out, true Israel is those ones who follow God, who keep the commandments of God. If we just mention in uh, Revelation 14, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Those people are Israel. Israel was chosen as a vehicle, as Lydia pointed out, to reveal God's will to the the whole nations around. We are the same Israel, even though you may heard about to the 
New Testament believers that they are the spiritual Israel. And in the Bible, by the way, in uh, Galatians, if I go Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it says here, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God, in Jesus. These are the true Israel and uh, the seed of Abraham. And this is a very important thing because, my dear friend, today, we may be proud that we are the spiritual Israel, but if we don't follow God in the whole truth, following his commandments, we can be exactly in the same place of the physical Israel, being rejected. There is no any guarantee that if you call yourself you know, the seed of Abraham or spiritual Israel or physical Israel, you have assurance of salvation. You need to follow God in all truth. And that's the assurance of salvation. Let yes. me take a, a moment here, Len, if I could, uh, just to uh, share with our listener uh, today a wonderful book which we offer. And that's what the Bible says about there are many things we talked about here we can enlarge in a in a more in-depth study. And Loni Melashenko put together this book with over 30 uh, Bible studies. And my dear friend, this book is yours today. And it will help you to put together all these things and clarify some of the things in the Bible. You just need to send us a text message with the code SABS3. SA stands for South Australia, BS for Bible study, at number three, and this book is yours. Just send the text message to 0482093883. The code is SABS3. Don't put any other words there or space in between them. Just send that uh, code and our friendly robot will take you through. Should the temple um, services be reinstituted, Len, that would constitute a repudiation of most of the prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to the sufferings of the Messiah. And if a high priest starts offering sacrifices again, Christianity as a whole, those who believe this, are really saying Christ's sacrifice on Calvary back in AD 31 is worth nothing. It seems to me such a uh, a jumble of beliefs to think that Israel and the temple needs to be reinstated when it's quite clear that Jesus is the one through whom the world will be blessed. Now, Will, in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, there's a statement there which I can imagine some people would be confused over. Would you just like to open this up a little bit? Yes, Psalm 89 verse 4 says, I will establish your line forever. It's talking about David's line. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Then history as volatile as it is extends no guarantees to nations, kingdoms or individuals. So to have a promise like this, from the mouth of the Almighty God is really, really noteworthy. David's line 
in and through Jesus, and that's the important point, David's line in and through Jesus would extend through many generations, and it is of this line that Jesus, the Savior of mankind, was born. And his kingdom, yes, his kingdom will stand forever. And we're reminded that also in the prophecies of Daniel. You know, as you've reminded us, uh, Len and panel, that means that Christ's spiritual kingdom is to stand forever. It is not the physical Israel will stand forever. Thank you, Will. I think you can't say it any clearer than that. So also in Psalm 89, with a number of verses here, acclaims God's eternal kingdom. Brenton, what are the foundational principles of Christ's kingdom that are not usually found in earthly kingdoms? Verse 14, Lenz says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Now, the words mercy and truth are interesting ones because they are not often included in worldly kingdoms, if at all. You look at some of the autocratic uh, systems that are in place laying around the world at the moment, such as Russia and China, North Korea and other places, you'd hardly describe mercy and truth as being part of their makeup or the part of their modus operandi. So I, I think I'm looking forward to this kingdom personally yes. because a kingdom that is merciful is a kingdom I want to belong to. Yes, the kingdom of justice and righteousness. Yes. All right. Well, the question is, is there going to be anyone who's going to challenge or overthrow God's kingdom according to what the Bible says, Legend? No, the answer is no. Uh, to understand uh, exactly that uh, the enemies are making made a footstool we can take the image from uh, the custom of the ancient near eastern kings that in their wars they used to place their feet on the necks of their defeated enemies to demonstrate total dominance over them but um, there is a time will, uh, when it will come that uh, Christ will have absolute victory over his enemies and as I read in Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here we observe that the portrayal of God as the Messiah's father points to the coronation of the king when the king's, the king was adopted into God's covenant. So the Messiah sits at at God's right hand as someone who has unprecedented honor and authority. So here is a interplay between the Lord God and the anointed Messiah, uh, which suggests an intention to identify his Davidic Messiah with the Lord himself. So if the one who sits at the right, at the right hand of the Lord, then the Lord is the Messiah. And in the end, there will be, there will come a time when Christ will have absolute victory over his enemies. Okay. Thank you, Lydia. Christ's kingdom 
eternal kingdom will never be challenged. Now, as a last point, Jesus was described as Lord, King, but also as a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. In just a few words, Joe, why is this title, Melchizedek, conferred on Christ? That's a big topic. Just to put everything in a few words, now the book of Hebrews refers to this order, Melchizedek, a number of times in conjunction with Christ's priestly ministry. And if anyone would like to read more about it, it's in Hebrews chapters 4 to 8. But a key a key text is Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save those who come to God through him. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, Paul tells us a little bit about Melchizedek, and he describes him as the king of Salem or the king of peace and the priest of the most high God. So we have here a dual role of a priest king, which is what Jesus is. He is the king of kings and a high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So um, we have that amalgamation, that role of the high priest, the king of kings, the one that sits at the right hand of God. I could tell you a lot more. I've got a special Bible called the Disciples Bible. It's a new King James Version with additional information. Part of these studies helps include many pages listing the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus. Old Testament references and the specific prophecies stand side by side in this Bible with texts from the New Testament showing how those prophecies were fulfilled. I mentioned before how many there are. It's about 350. So many of these prophecies are from the Psalms. This demonstrates to me that the Psalms were inspired by God himself. Therefore, the Psalms is worthy of your attention. Among other things, as we pointed out today, the Psalms point to Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, my Lord and Saviour, and we hope your Lord and Saviour. Naomi, would you like to end our study with a prayer? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are just in awe of you, of how you have made all these plans for us to shelter us and keep us just as, as the shepherd does the sheep. We, we thank you, Father, for the word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you have set a plan for us, a promise, that if we come close to you and hear your voice, we will know your voice and that you know us, you know us by name, and that you will supply all our needs. We thank yes. you, Father, and we we love you. And we thank you, Father, for this time that we can come to you and spend in your womb. Please go with us this week and bless all of us and our families. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, your participation, your input, for this wonderful uh, Bible study. We are talking about um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
by his humanity, Christ touched humanity. And by his divinity, he lays hold upon the throne of God. As the son of man, he gave us an example of obedience. As a son of God, he gave us power to obey. It was Christ who from the bush on Mount Horeb spoke to Moses saying, I am that I am. I am the child of Bethlehem, the meek and the lowly savior. God is manifested here in flesh. I am the living bread. I am the good shepherd, Jesus mentioned. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. My dear friend, today we are trying to show from the scripture, and particularly from the book of Psalms, but not only, that Jesus is our only hope. We'll invite you to allow Jesus to transform your life. If you need to fall on the rock, why not to do that? If you need to build on the rock, why not to do that? Jesus, it's our Savior. May God bless you and have a wonderful walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Don't forget to ask for the offer which we have for today. And that's what the Bible says about you just need to send us a text message to 0482098383. The code is SABS3. Well, next time we are going to take some lessons of the past, still in the book of Psalms. Until then, may God richly bless you.